Welcome to Zodiac Sessions, a special bonus episode of Zodiac Chronicle podcast. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today to discuss Zodiac, and particularly Zodiac through the prism of Roger Ebert's iconic four-star review, is the host of the Gene and Roger podcast and the author of Best Movie Year Ever, the terrific Brian Raftery. In case you haven't heard about the show, Gene and Roger, here's a trailer. Every week for nearly 25 years, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert delivered their verdicts on the latest movies. Thumbs up or thumbs down. Those thumbs helped make Gene and Roger the most popular, most powerful film critics in the country. Viewers loved them. Studio executives feared them. Decades later, you can still see Siskel and Ebert's influence. They taught a whole generation how to talk and how to argue. And not just about movies, but about TV and politics and sports. There are now Siskel and Ebert's everywhere. Over the past year, I've spoken with Siskel and Ebert's family members and colleagues, plus some of the filmmakers whose careers they impacted along the way. Together, they tell how two rivals came together to form one of the most powerful partnerships in showbiz history. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Brian Raftery, and this is Gene and Roger. The series premieres July 20th on the Big Picture feed. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to an extremely special Zodiac Sessions bonus podcast of Zodiac Chronicle. I'm your host, Blake Howard. This is an extremely special one because it doesn't sound anything like any episode of Zodiac Chronicle you've heard so far. And look, thank you so much for your support. Uh, Today, I'm taking an opportunity to talk to a person whose movie obsessions aligned so deeply with mine that it was like a miracle that we hadn't had an opportunity to speak so far. Um, This man, most of you guys would know, uh, kind of inspired a whole lot of conversation about 1999. He obviously wrote the book, Best Movie Year Ever. And very recently, uh, he made me binge a podcast in the middle of producing all of my own podcasts and made me cry listening to a podcast, the beautiful Gene and Roger show um, as part of the Big Picture podcast. I now am speaking to the host of that great show, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, obsessive, a movie obsessive, uh, and and now a Fincher and Zodiac obsessive too, one of those people that is like us that agrees that it is the best Fincher film. Please welcome to One Eight Minute Productions and Zodiac Chronicle, Brian Raftery. Brian, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Hey, Blake. Thanks for having me. So I in these more informal chats that people don't get to hear too many of when I start them in Zodiac because they're usually just injected into the into the soundscape. <laughs> um, I usually say start off with like a silly question, like talk to me about Zodiac. But I'd love to hear you. Uh, we were just talking off air about conventional wisdom shifting, and we were talking about Michael Mann, and mm. we we're talking about David Fincher, and I would love for you to talk about the conventional wisdom that has shifted for David Fincher and that now resoundingly Zodiac is his masterpiece. Uh, I mean, I've always been fascinated by Fincher because, and I've interviewed him a couple of times. I did a, I did a wired profile many years ago, but my first experience with Fincher really was going to see seven uh, in a incredibly rainy, depressing middle of the week screening in the middle of the day while I, was a, while I was a college student in Pittsburgh and going back to my dorm. And I absolutely remember almost throwing up. <laughs> so I've had this very, I've been, and I remember too, I, I lived in New York in 1999. I had my first job was, uh, I was at Entertainment Weekly. I just started my very first job out of college. And I remember going to see Fight Club on opening night. I remember the theater in Manhattan 
and standing out with my friend afterward and just feeling like I was going to throw up. So I, he is someone who I have, I feel I had a very personal connection with. I have always been fascinated with him and his movies. And obviously I think, I don't think he's made a single movie that I have not seen opening night, opening weekend. I drove during the pandemic to a drive-in the first night that Mank was playing just to go uh, see it on a screen. Yeah. And I actually got into an auto accident on the way there. And I was, it was such a minor accident that I was like, Dude, don't worry about it. I gotta go. I almost said I'm going to see Mank. <laughs> I, was like, I can't. I can't sit here and talk about our, our scraped tire right now. Um, but one thing that really interests me about Fincher, and I have a lot of friends who are Fincher fanatics, um, is that I do feel as though uh, you get these shifts in terms of consensus. When you grow up, when you love popular culture, when you grow up reading Rolling Stone record guides and Spin magazine or Roger Ebert books about culture you generally at a certain point have an idea what everyone thinks the best work by a certain filmmaker or by a best author or by an author or by a band is. And then one thing I've loved in the last 20 years as I get older is watching that change. So for example, you know, 15 years ago, if you'd asked anyone who liked Fleetwood Mac what the best Fleetwood Mac album was, they would say, oh, it's rumors. But I feel like in the last 10 years now, it's like actually Tusk or actually <laughs> Tango in the Night. It's, you know what I mean? It's like there's these, as new generations come in, as people rethink these things and it happens with movies too. I definitely think that you know, before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, most diehard Tarantino fans would say, yeah, I like Pulp Fiction. That's number two. You know, Reservoir Dogs is number three. Jackie Brown is the really great, yeah. um, uh, great Tarantino movie. And I do think Zodiac has become, for someone who has so many great films that people, that people just completely glom onto, uh, like whether it's Gone Girl or Fight Club or even Alien 3, which has its adherence, I do think Zodiac has become you're the person at the party who's like, yeah, I like Fincher, but you know what his best movie is? It's Zodiac. Like it wasn't his biggest hit. It's a little long. Um, you know, it's, and that's, I definitely know that person. And I think I've, after rewatching it again, I've watched it so many times. I wonder if I'm kind of becoming that person. <laughs> as much as I love the social network and love Gone Girl and, and really uh, love Seven and a lot of his movies. I do think Zodiac is absolutely, um, to me, it is just absolutely a, a perfect movie. And I'm, I'm on a Zodiac podcast saying, Zodiac is perfect. That's not breaking news, but it really strikes me. The older I get, I am very moved by it. Um, as someone who grew up, the children, uh, I'm, both my parents worked in newspapers. I grew up going to newspaper offices. So just the scenes of them marching through the newsroom get me very emotional now. Um, but I also just think it is, uh, you know, it is just, it is just so entertaining and so fleet and just moves so quickly. And I, I am probably the person in the party who's like, yeah, Zodiac actually gang. I love social network. It's great. We all quote it, but Zodiac, I mean, can you believe the scene where all the, where all the police chiefs are on the phone together? That's amazing shit, you know? <laughs> so I do think that Zodiac has become among Fincher people that I know. Um, it's, it's gone from being maybe their number four or five movie in the last couple of years to being number two or number one, I think. Yeah. It's, you don't want to be that guy. I think that's what we want to be clear is like, you don't want to be that, <laughs> but actually guy, no. but so, so, no, no. so you, you never want to be it. But like, I think that in this recent, in the recent shift, um, it, it is good to have that. It is good to have that dialogue. And I think that Zodiac Fincher is such a talent. I, this is one thing I, that really frustrates me with these conversations with great talents and people like what's, they do it with the huge filmmakers, you know, what's the best Coppola? What's the best Scorsese? What's the best, what a Spielberg, how impossible, like what's the best Spielberg? Like, I mean, sure. Jaws, whatever. Like I, I who knows, like who knows what the best is when you're talking about that? What's the best Coen brothers film is another one that just is like so infuriating and yeah. I feel like it's generational, but I do love 
the ability for a movie to gain new life so much. And I feel like yeah. in, in some of the projects that we've done, um, I've been lucky because I, I, and I think, I feel like you've done this too. Is like, I've been the guy on the Island right from the outset going, this is the best one. Like, <laughs> like, I'm like, this is the best one. And everyone's like, no, but I'm like, trust me. And also we live in the world of popular culture and, and, uh, and online culture. And I think what benefits something like the social network, it has a whole new life. It's like Leonardo DiCaprio who thought that his whole career would just be memeable. Like he's like mm. insert DiCaprio into meme here and then reappraise a movie <laughs> in abstract because he's so funny as just like a meme character and as a meme response. Yeah. Um, it's so hilarious how that's happened, but I feel like the social network has, an immense amount of meme ability. Whereas Zodiac is oh, not as yeah. memeable. So like, I feel like that's also part of this great pop culture dialogue is that like things get memeable, things get chunked together. And you're like, oh, if, you know, if this was a movie that was made a couple of years later, or a couple of years earlier, it would totally have like taken a new life. But, but yeah, I, I am shocked because obviously we are such you particularly, but I feel like we are Roger and, and Gene acolytes, particularly Roger acolytes, mm. that like when you go back and you say, what did critics think of Zodiac? How did it not, mm. how was it not resoundingly the masterpiece right from the outset? And you read Roger's review, it is so emphatic and so glowing mm -hmm. and so yeah. completely insightful right from the gut, right from the jump that you're like, Oh, there was already something there. It just took a little, yeah. It took a tuning fork to happen. You know, Josh Roth, Josh Rothkopf wrote a time out in New York at the time, you know, wrote like an, I think amazing six star review. I think it was or something like that. It was a, put it, called it a flat out masterpiece. Um, but you know, there were those few out there and then this, it kind of, it just waited until that 10 year list came around. And then by 2010, it had already turned. It's one of the fastest movies I think that's ever turned exactly as you said in that popular culture discourse between like year of release to end of decade list it seems like the worm had turned well i mean it's also a movie that i think when it came out there were two things that happened one is that i think people were expecting a kind of seven part two yes. i think they were expecting a grizzly or serial killer, serial killer movie um but i also think that you know you can look at zodiac as a warning i mean to me it is absolutely about the danger of and it's about the danger of obsession. But when I was just rewatching it, I mean, ideas of, of how you can't prove something, you know, the idea of what's provable and what's not and how far a belief. I mean, we are at a time now where people just find themselves in rabbit holes for everything. And they're not even, they're not even grounded in something like a Zodiac killer, which is an actual event that they can research and find out and talk to people about. They are kind of um, just searching their screens for an answer that they want. And I think this movie feels so... Um, it, you know, it, in a way, it's kind of like in the way that almost the social, social network is a little bit early when we talk about the danger of these kind of, of, of these kind of technology companies and people who run them. Uh, I mean, to me, it just, uh, there's so many warning signs throughout Zodiac it, it, about where we were heading. I think in 2007, when Zodiac came out, the movies that year that really felt uh, like a gut punch were movies like Michael Clayton or No Country for Old Men. Um, and and I think those movies were all sort of dealing with what was going on at that moment in America, which was a really kind of stressful time, even before uh, the kind of economic meltdown. 
I think Zodiac came out and it was a movie about where we were going to be headed in the next 10 years. Yes. And I don't think it hit quite as hard because it's kind of hard to watch a movie and go, oh, this is the, you know, this is a movie telling us what the internet is slowly turning into. And this is, this is a movie telling us what obsession might look like in the digital age. Um, and I think it's only natural that it has in the last couple of years felt much more relevant uh, and much more um, insightful. I kind of hate the word prescient. It's used for everything now to describe <laughs> every movie that ever came out 20 years earlier. It's like, it's become a weird clickbait headline thing. But I do really feel like the social, like, I do feel that whether Fincher knew it or not, um, when you watch Zodiac, you are in 2021, you are watching a movie about 2021 that starts in the late 60s and goes on for another whole decade. It's, <laughs> it's pretty fascinating. And I think that's, I think that's really helped kind of change people's ideas about where fits in Fincher's uh, bigger sort of filmography. Yeah, it's really funny because I, when I look at Zodiac now, especially after so many of the conversations that I've had and so uh, people who were in, say, New York City, who look at the building, the Trans-America Pyramid being built in Zodiac and people like Josh Rothkopf or Matt Zoller-Zeitz, a couple of great voices in film criticism and, and, and David Fear, who's now the you know, editor at Rolling Stone, those guys talking about flying back into New York post 9-11 and seeing the mm. chasm where the buildings used to be yeah. at Ground Zero and then seeing that moment in Zodiac talking about like, I know that Fincher might not say this, but like because he maybe wasn't directly trying to reference it, but this whole concept of like buildings being built in the sp in, in like a vacuum, like buildings being built in a space that mm. has so much more meaning and San Francisco true, truly this like monument to Zodiac that this movie is, is like building in this vacuum in this void of like, you know, uh, discomfort and like dissatisfaction and like endlessness. And I feel like whatever that he was dragging out of that period where you've got, there will be blood, which is kind of like this incisive, you know, portrait of American capitalism where you've got no country for old men, which is uh, just about like the increasing amorality of the time. You got Michael Clayton, which is actually the prescient one about sort of corporate mm. malfeasance <laughs> um, and, and all that. And then yeah. you get you get Zodiac. I think they're all these taking these tendrils and these influences of like this incredibly rich time, cultural time, and like a time for great reflection. But I think based on the fact that it is being built at this time, it, I, I, exactly as you said, I think it's like the technology enabling thing. Um, it, it jumps onto something so prophetic as you were talking about, because mm. if any filmmaker could solve the Zodiac killer mystery, it's David Fincher. Like, and it's also, <laughs> it's also David Fincher in the early two thousands when you have so much access to technology, so much access to databases, so much, you know, they chunking all this information together, mapping things out, like doing things digitally, whether it's rendering it for a movie or like actually solving it. And I feel like what's incredible is when you do have access to technology that is like 40 years ahead of where the movie you're making is mm. and you still can't get answers because I'm sure they yeah. messed around with it. They as filmmakers equally almost have to come to terms with it. And I feel like that's exactly what you're talking about, which I think is so spot on is them coming to terms with there can't be an answer and technology is not a cure-all for this problem. Sometimes yeah. there are answers that can't be, that we don't have evidence for, or we don't, we need more information or we need something else because we've exhausted everything and there's only so long you can stare at the same facts and 
and and sort of not not go beyond anything but like a hypothetical conclusion. And so I I think you're so right that that's where they kind of get it. And I feel like we've totally regressed into mm. pouring over facts of like spurious quality and doing those sorts of things. So when you mm. watch this, just like when, you know, the movie that this that Zodiac is made in its honor and something that I'm, uh, anyone who's listening knows is a huge, like one of my favorite movies of all time. Like the, all the president's men of it all and the social network mm-hmm. of it all, they are more miraculous almost because they're telling a story at the time in yeah. a way that seems to resonate even more than the time that they're actually speaking about it because it kind of has, it captures something about where we are at in society now. And I, yeah, I social network is a miracle for that. There's two movies ever. I almost think that have been able to be made at the time and still resonate so strongly. So after the fact, and I think it's those two movies, it's a presidents and social network because I think that at the time people are like, oh, I can't believe that they're, you know, making a drama out of this thing. And now it's the rarest thing to go, oh, they could have gone further. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Sorkin has talked about the fact that I think he screened all the president's men right before social network came out and did like a Q and a, because, you know, they're, they have so much DNA. And what's really amazing about both those movies is that you know how they end. I mean, you can just go, you can stand in line in the theater and be like, you know, in the seventies, you couldn't go on the internet and know how it happened with Watergate. But in the seventies, you knew what happened with Watergate. And if you were in line for the social network, you probably had even the, the, the cruddiest, like, you know, cell phone in 2000, uh, was it 2010? Was it the year 2011? Yeah, it's 2010, um, yeah. You could still at least, yeah, you could look up like who were the Winklevoss before and know how this all went out. Um, and I think one thing that's really interesting about going back to what you're saying about um, the Transamerica building scene is that one thing that's really kind of moving about um, Zodiac and maybe why this, why it connects with people in a way, especially with people I know as they get older, it's, is that it's a movie about time. Mm. It's a movie about time. You can't get back. It's about a movie. It's a movie about how time uh, just keeps going on, whether you want it to or not. And, you know, it's also a, a, it's also a movie about how, uh, you know, in 2007, yeah, looking at the towers and I lived in New York at the time and watching that, go up so relatively quickly over that spot. You know, it's also a movie about how because of time, cities move on like people do. They have to keep evolving. They do, no matter whether you're ready for it or not. Um, and I think one thing that really punches me in the gut about Zodiac, um, rewatching it again recently, is the Anthony Edwards line where he's like, I got to watch these kids grow up. You know, he's the only person who realizes like, I have lost time and I need to somehow get it back. And no one else in that movie really gets to have that kind of awareness of time. And I think, I think it's why in some ways it is kind of a heartbreaking movie. Um, and it's not just heartbreaking because these people were killed and because we never really knew what happened, but because we watched so many people give up so much of their lives for something that never gave them an easy answer. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I find the movie, as, I, as you can tell, I find it very deeply affecting aside from being crackerjack fun. I mean, it really, I don't want to make it sound like it's a maudlin emo drama. It is just, it is absolutely so well fucking made. And again, the amount of information that's conveyed in each scene in a way that doesn't feel stupid um, is remarkable to me. Um, but, you know, I, I really do, I do sort of, as I get older, this movie grows with me and I find myself, I was probably close to the Jake Gyllenhaal character's age when I first saw it and probably identified with the scrappy going to spend the whole time in the basement because I get so obsessed with something. And now I feel more like Anthony Edwards character. I'm like, <laughs> I, I want to watch my kids grow up. You know what I mean? Like I, I realize now that you can't just follow every single obsession that you have in life because then it becomes your life. And 
you are now speaking a language that is the language of these podcasts and the things that we do <laughs> of like that tension because you look at it and it's, I completely agree. I, this is another miracle of that movie is Anthony Edwards just delivering maybe is like, it, I think maybe the, the MVP performance, I think kind of universally at the moment is like, Oh, it's Ruffalo. But I think in maybe a few more years, even people are going to start going, Hey, you know, Anthony Edwards gave like maybe the most, insightful naturalistic performance that's ever been committed to a movie and it's in zodiac because i i i am so heartbroken by that scene i think some people have you know when i've had a couple of weird reactions people talking about that scene that sort of tosky armstrong breakup scene if you like of them like separating and tosky trying to comfort him in his decision um but what hits me even more after that scene is when graysmith asks about armstrong and how extremely mm -hmm. protective. Yes, absolutely. He Toski is of Armstrong. No, you can't ask Bill. He's out. And yeah. I, I feel like that is this movie saying there is actually a path out of some of these things. And sometimes you have to be, you know, you have to look at the universe and say, All right, you you got me. You beat me. Mm -hmm. It's fine. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm good. I'm, it's fine. And I'm Edwards gonna... is great. Yeah, yeah, Edwards does that so well. He's such a great. He is really one of the most underrated actors of of my. Of, I mean, I'm not. I'm a little bit younger than him, but I, I do think of that whole kind of came up in the '80s uh, era generation. I do think he has always been, despite being on a huge smash you know, hit TV yeah. show that he got like five Emmy nominations or whatever. He he's truly a great actor. I mean, this and Miracle Mile. You look at him and you're just like, this this guy really has. Um, a depth to him in all these characters that I think sometimes people don't notice because he's he's just a character actor guy. You know, he, he's a character actor guy who was on a hit TV show, uh, but he's 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 really good and he's great in this movie. I do think it's the best thing he's done besides maybe Miracle Mile. Yeah, I'm as as a, a dear friend Walter Chaw um, kind of definitively wrote the tome on Miracle Mile. I feel like it would be insulting to um, <laughs> to say if Walter's listening, hey, Walter, um, to say that it's not Miracle Mile because that's that. But I, this is my favorite because he's just, right. Um, as you said, he's, you know, um, every single day, every single day, especially in the pandemic, I've, I don't know about, I don't know about you, Brian, you guys are out of it now, but I've at, at the moment here in Oz, I've been sort of like cutting my own hair and ha with some modicum of success, my wife's been helping to make sure that I don't completely butcher it. <laughs> but every day, like more, more of the, more of that sort of like Clooney silver Fox thing is happening to the top of my hair. And I'm like, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like the more I, you literally start to stop looking like the Jake, you know, the sprightly young Jake Gyllenhaal in uh, as Robert Grace, <laughs> you start looking like Anthony Edwards is Armstrong and you're like, yeah, this is, this transition completely makes sense. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit because I thought this would be a, a fun thing because you're a great show. So firstly, congratulations on Gene and Roger, number one. I mean, oh, I know you. a lot of people know you from the best movie year ever, but, um, and, and then the subsequent sort of ringer inspired podcast of the rewatchables 99 that sort of took from the, the Raftery playbook. But I was so, um, interested in chatting to you because I had sort of referenced it and discussed it a, a, a few times on the show, but I really wanted to talk to you about, because you're clearly a Gene and Roger obsessive um, yourself, but I wanted to talk to you about Roger Ebert's review of, uh, mm. of, of Zodiac. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jack, as he's one of his one of his four star reviews, the final review in his uh, four star um, book from mm. nineteen sixty seven to two thousand and seven. Um, but I, I want to talk to you about that. But can you just like quickly for folks if they haven't had a chance, and if you haven't, you need to. But can you tell me where your Gene and Roger obsession uh, came about? I know you talk a little bit about the show, but like, can you talk about like what finally compelled you to sort of chronicle? like this two amazing voices of film criticism? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I grew up with these guys. I watched them every, you know, every weekend that I could remember as a kid. Um, it was kind of my reward for going to church and behaving. I would watch Cisco and Ebert and I would watch, I think Saturday Night Live tapes the night before. Um, but they were incredibly influential on me. And I, and I started noticing a couple of years ago, um, this weird thing was happening, which is that, you know, I, I do go on certain movie subreddits. I'm not always proud of that. I don't, I don't post, uh, I do lurk though. Uh, um, and I, and I, I, I also sur- have to confess, I do lurk, but I don't yes. post because I feel that I'm on the precipice of a Graysmith level rabbit hole. If you're in a subreddit, <laughs> I mean, it's the same with letterbox, which I, I lurk on too. You know, a, a big reason honestly is that I just don't have a lot of time. Like I just, I, ha- I have young kids and I'm always running around. So I love to just kind of zip through reviews, but I noticed on Reddit, uh, maybe five, four or five years ago, I, I noticed that people who were clearly very young, I mean, people who I could just tell based on the movies they were watching for the first time, that they must've been in their twenties uh, or maybe even teens. And they would talk about a movie, you know, a, a crucial, you know, sort of seminal movie from the eighties or nineties like Pulp Fiction, um, or maybe even like Fight Club. And they would say, I just watched this for the first time, by the way, here's Siskel and Ebert's review of it. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting because these, these young people are weren't around when Gene and Roger were these big TV critics. Um, and I realized that there was kind of that their reviews were kind of having the, the, the video clips of their reviews because they're so quick, you know, the five to six minutes tops really um, kind of had the second life. And I also realized that in the last three or four years, they were multiplying on YouTube and other websites just at a huge rate. I don't know what happened. I don't know whether someone found a collection of Cisco and Ebert's and just started uploading every episode, but there's so much more out there than there was five years ago. And there's so much more than there was even a year ago when we started putting this together. Um, so I was kind of fascinated. I was like, oh wow, young people are kind of watching Siskel and Ebert and using them as their kind of go-to movie review the same way I would read movie reviews after I watched a movie when I was a kid. Um, but I wonder if they know who these guys are. Um, and at the same time, I started realizing that people who were my own age or grew up with them um, we're bringing them up in conversation. Uh, you know, there are shows um, like the Ringer shows, like the Rewatchables, where they talk about Ebert's review quite a bit. Um, so they both still have this place in the culture. And so I kind of thought it'd be fun to, um, you know, I, I, I am very lucky in that journalism is a job where you get to follow your obsessions. And I was, I decided to sort of pitch this idea of like, what if we talk to, you know, Gene and Roger's family members, their colleagues, their, their the people who admired them, like Quentin Tarantino, and sort of tell their story, but also kind of explain why explain why they're still important now and how they kind of redefine the way people talked about movies, but also talked about everything on TV. I mean, I'd never seen grownups argue before, really. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I'm from an Irish family and I saw Gene and Roger argue more than my own relatives. Just saying, oh, just saying, oh. 
That um, is I, saying you know, a lot. That is that saying, is saying a lot. But, you know, I, I really do think that I learned a certain amount of how to talk to people about art and uh, specifically movies, but about art and how to be, how to stand your ground, but how to also be um, not jerky about it from, from watching Gene and Roger. Um, so, and it was really fun to, to put all this together. And I spent most of the pandemic in America uh, homeschooling my kids every morning and then watching two to three hours of homeschooling for clips every <laughs> afternoon, which is really comic. It's really soothing to watch those guys old clips. You make a great point, which is, and it's almost like uh, in, in, in reference to Zodiac, it's almost like the Paul Avery of it all, that Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> is an extremely charming, witty, and just gregarious character. Like people love mm -hmm. being around him. And I feel like Gene and Roger are this miraculous pair because obviously they start out in your show Chronicles, you know, they, they, they took a while to find their rhythm, but once they found it, they mm -hmm. are able to do that kind of Paul Avery thing, which is like literally insult your taste to your face and then sort yes. of smile at you and they do it to each other. And we are kind of these, you know, this sort of passive, um, you know, or silent observer, if you like uh, through our screen, but they would, could have their taste, could have their opinion, could flagrantly insult you and then smile and you don't feel bad. It's again, sorry to overuse that word. Sometimes I say it's a miracle, but it is kind of miraculous that, you know, in such a, I mean, I don't, you would see that lurking on a Reddit thread or on Twitter or on a letterbox. It's like, sometimes when you're the person on the Island that, you know, really likes a movie, like people want to shout you down. Or if you use, mm. usually when you say that a movie that lots of people are kind of critically screaming about and praising is the best thing ever. And you're kind of like, mm, not for me. Um, and, yeah. and usually <laughs> people want to jump down your throat, but I think that that's, what's so wonderful about these guys is that they, uh, the, the thing that I admire about them is that ability that even when they don't like what you like, or they say something that you don't necessarily like about a movie, you like the, the wink and the smile and the, the intent at the end of it, it is kind of this like, Hey, wasn't that fun? You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. this fun. Wasn't that what we just yeah. did where we talked about that movie? Wasn't that just a blast? And I, that, that is so rare to this day. I still like, and I think that you tried to unpack it in your series and I don't, and, and no fault to the series, but I also think it's like, sometimes there's, there's some alchemical force of two people mm -hmm. um, that can't be replicated. And so many people try <laughs> so many. People oh, totally. try. And in Australia, we've got, we had at the movies, which is David Stratton, and Margaret mm -hmm. Pomerant. So that's another one for you to interesting one to go down rabbit holes on. And in Australia, that's what we did. It was like, we didn't have as mm -hmm. much Jane and Roger. We had Margaret and David. And so that would be that thing that they had a, they, I think they're probably the, the only equivalency that I've seen in the Jane and Roger world that had uh, a kind of great chemistry. Cause Margaret was much mm -hmm. more fun and flighty and sort of bohemian energy. And Stratton was like a stuff shirt. And so watching those two guys, <laughs> like, just their their energy bounce off each other is such a special thing but i want to talk about one thing that you did talk about in your show because i think it'll lead to roger's review of zodiac is how right on time both of these guys were as critical voices with some things that people completely miss that are now the dominant texts in our culture like spike mm. lee's do the right thing and hearing those guys talk about it and then talk about how almost sort of cruel and strange that it was not recognized for Oscars. Um, yeah. That's a really special thing and such a, like with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> like they were yeah. just completely unafraid uh, to, to have the, those opinions and to just, you know, to, to, to share them on the biggest platform possible. 
Yeah, and they and it's and it's important for people who are really young listening to understand like their platform was absolutely huge. I mean, this especially by the late '80s, early '90s, they were on every they were in every major TV market in the U.S. They were on the Tonight Show. They were on Letterman. I mean, they were on Letterman. I think it was almost nine and a half hours of of Letterman appearances they did. It's remarkable. They were on magazine covers. You know, Mad Magazine spoofed them. Um, and I, you know, the '90s is really my favorite era of Cisco and Ebert. It's partly personal because that was really my first, that was the first decade where I could kind of pick what movies I wanted to watch. So I was using them as a guide and I was very influenced by them. And, 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 um, you know, clearly when they would talk about something like Hoop Dreams and then they would do Hoop Dreams again two weeks later, I was like, I got to see Hoop Dreams. You know, it was very, <laughs> and I, I could go see them. Unlike when I was much younger and I was like, how do I watch this movie called The Thin Blue Line? Like, what is this? <laughs> I'm eight years old. Um, but I do think, you know, oh they my had God, this- I love, I love eight year old Brian. <laughs> Mom, I want to say, how do I say Errol Morris is the thin blue? I, I might be aging myself down a little bit. I got to say, I, maybe I was 10 or 11, but I specifically remember that review oh because I was like, this is what a documentary can do. I was used to like school documentaries where it's like, here's how beans become, you know, it's like farming documentaries. I was like, I made a documentary about a crime. Um, but I do think in the 90s, they, they did have this platform and they did have power. And I don't think they were people who necessarily, I think they enjoyed being uh where they were in the in the culture as celebrities but i don't think they wanted to take advantage of that but they did use their power and what they used it to was they to get people excited about movies but also to get people frustrated when movies weren't treated well you know when when spike lee's when do the right thing didn't win it can roger was frustrated very vocally you know when, when hoop dreams got passed over for best documentary they were livid they went on david letterman's show not to talk about you know not to plug their own work but the to bemoan the fact that Hoop Dreams was getting screwed over. They railed against the Academy at a time when honestly, a lot of people were just like, who cares about the Academy? It's a big deal, we watch it, but like, why, why do we care what the documentary committee is doing in its bylaws? <laughs> they, they cared about that stuff. They cared about NC-17 being slapped on movies that didn't need NC-17. They were, they, they really, I don't know if they were activists in their mind, but they really, they did some cool stuff with their, with their platform, with their power in the 90s. Yeah, I feel like, you know, it's not only the template for so many shows, um, you know, and, and the connection and the, and the friction that creates all great, great talk, anything, great fan talk shows uh, that they mm. created that template. But I feel like they, they, that, that's the thing that still strikes me with some of their most important reviews is where they were on them and then actually having the insight to dig underneath it about like, it's actually frustrating and you're, we're, we're going to point out some, a, a systemic flaw in the Oscars, mm. which mm-hmm. no one cared about, right? We're going to point out a systemic flaw in this thing and, and we're going to, we're going to harp on it because we're going to bring, we're going to cast our light on it because if the worst thing, you know, um, you know, sorry to jump onto another film reference, but I think you would appreciate it. It's like the lol, like, um, the Lowell Bergman line that I love in the insider so much is like, you're making me two things pissed off and curious. And, (laughs) and I think that these guys, when they were pissed off and then they were curious, they weren't afraid to sort of like call shit out. And I I feel like, you know, when you see it later and people are like, how didn't that win best picture? What won that year? Like what? what, And and obviously the Oscars again is not a necessarily a salve for like what's happening in the culture because it's so rarely gets it right. You know, there's for every, 
Moonlight and Parasite, there's a Shakespeare in Love. Um, but it's it's I I think it's one of those things that I I completely appreciate about them, and 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 just again one of those strange and beautiful things of osmosis where like they get it straight off the bat, and there's you know. There's other times mm. where they don't completely get it off the bat, um, and 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 Roger would often come back and revisit. And again, just the in 2021, I've said this to a few people, Brian. So many people, and sorry to take this down to like a political edge, but so many people, it seems to me, would rather be would rather be dead than wrong. Mm. Mm. And what I love about these guys is that throughout all their opinions and candor and everything, it feels like the arc of their show, they sometimes were like, maybe I was wrong on that. Yeah. And, they went, and I mean, they went, went back. back and, yeah. She went back on Apocalypse Now like three times yeah. over like 12 years. And then he was like, you know what? I like it. <laughs> it's been like, a long time. And I, I, one thing I do, there's two elements that, that I love. One is that I do, I watched probably thousands of, of their reviews I never got the sense once that they were trying to fit their review in with conventional thinking. They weren't contrarians. They weren't fans. They were just walking out of a movie and telling you what they thought of it. They, they were very, very genuine. And I think even I sometimes have a trouble while talking with friends being 100% honest about something if I know they disagree. You know, I mean, I, I, I will sometimes find myself completely out of thinking on certain movies and be like, oh boy, maybe I don't want to, I don't want to broadcast this because I really could be you know, <laughs> I've now. Um, but you know, I, that's, that's one thing that I, I really love about how honest they were, but another thing I love about them reviewing, going back and rewatching movies. And I think this is something that maybe you have this, I know, you know, to me, I love movies. I grew up in a very movie friendly household. I grew up with movie books all over the walls. My mom had, I, I watched old movies with my mom and my parents. It's what we did. And I'm still watching old movies and rewatching and mo loving movies is an ongoing education. You know, if you're lucky you can get a good 50, 60 years of watching movies and rewatching movies and being like, oh, how did I, you know, like I was talking about rewatching Zodiac. I hadn't rewatched Zodiac probably in, in like maybe five or six years. And I'm watching it now completely differently because I am now the age of roughly, you know, Ruffalo's character or, or Anthony yeah. Edwards character. And that is one of the best things about movies. It doesn't matter if you were right or wrong about a movie. It, what matters is in that moment, how it made you feel, how you reacted to it, what it was saying to you. And I do love that Gina Roger will go back and say, that wasn't speaking to me at the time, but now I get it. And sometimes those were really big movies where you'd be like, wait, that wasn't like Apocalypse Now didn't, didn't bully you over the first time. You needed, you did, but I get it. I, I absolutely get it. And I've had that relationship with movies as well. And it's, it's really nice to have that. Yeah. I, one of my favorite movies of all time is Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. Speaking of Thin mm. Blue Lines, but The Thin Red Line. And I detested it. The first time mm. I watched it, I watched it in a film studies course. We watched it the daytime viewing. The lecturer was like, we're not doing anything. We're not going to study anything. I don't want, you know, I, he, I think he polled the room and like not many of the students at the time had seen the movie. He's like, okay, let's, we're just going to watch this. And I hated it. I walked out. Mm. I was like, no, no, I hate it. You know, I had such a Saving Private Ryan person at the time. Mm. But I was just completely haunted by it it just stayed with me all night and i just couldn't stop thinking about it i was like i hated that i hated it and then i turned around and then within a couple of days i went back to the school library and i rented <laughs> rented it out and sat at one of those crappy little terminals that had like a vhs and a dvd player at the time and i sat down and like in the library in the broad daylight and i watched it again and i was like actually yeah. no that might be a masterpiece i was yeah. completely wrong
Like if I'd filed the review yesterday, it would have said something completely different. And so, yeah, I think I, I don't mind being wrong. I'm happy. I, I That's the, that's the, the thing I embrace so much with these guys is that like, that there also seems to be this infallibility complex with some folk who just never want to say that they're wrong. Like they, they mm. can't be relitigated. And it's like, no, that's actually what makes you charms to a person because they can be wrong and they can be fallible like a human being, yeah. not a robot. Um, but I have to read for us to sort of start unpacking what I think is maybe one of the best um, openers of any of his reviews, which is mm. really saying something. Um, but I, I just want to read this for us now and, and for folks listening because, and you would get anyone listening why it's one of my favorite lines. Zodiac is the all the president's men of serial killer movies <laughs> with Woodward and Bernstein played by a cop and a cartoonist. It's not merely based on California's infamous killings, but seems to exude the very stench and provocation of the case. The killer who was never caught generously supplied so many clues that Sherlock Holmes might've cracked the case in his sitting room, <laughs> but only a newspaper cartoonist was stubborn enough and tunneled away long enough to piece together a convincing case against a man who was perhaps guilty. What, mm. what an incredible, if any review could ever do that to you, <laughs> what this review does to me, it's just, it's, it's just so, so sublimely put together. There's a reason. There's a reason why people still read Roger's reviews on his website. Man, he was a great fucking writer. I mean, it's that's that is such classically smart, on deadline newspaper writing. Like, it's just it's so compact. I mean, I'm not going to get into. I won't get into the mechanics of it, but just as a writer, but how much I admire it. But yeah, you're you're you're, you're allowed to on this show, if any, get into the mechanics of why you like it. That's that's it, totally fine perfect, with me. It's the perfect graph because if you wrote nothing else, it's already a perfect. It's already yeah, such a great review. That's what how I much mean. Image you need you know i mean how much and also like if can you imagine reading this on the, the thursday night it went online or the friday morning it came on the paper you'd be like i gotta see this movie yeah <laughs> it's like it's yeah there's a lot of i i do love when he was when he was enthusiastic about a movie he would slowly he would sometimes slowly take his time getting to but this is one of those great kind of like off the right off the bat like it's just it's it's a really wonderful opening and again i love i love this kind of newspaper writing yeah, I, I think that's that's a the the one of the lost arts, um, and I and I mm -hmm. feel like still the great still the great critics seem to be able to do it. But there's there's a difference between the because th obviously he had the the requisite inches, like he kind of had earned it well and truly mm -hmm. by this point. But yeah, the requisite inches that he could basically just write at length at the kind of length that he ever wanted. You know, what what it would be eight hundred to twelve hundred, eight hundred to sort of twelve hundred words would you know he could do, or he could even do a four or five hundred word or now and then early in his career. But I just the 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 blistering economy of that first graph, and then it's just kind of then it rolls into all of, obviously so some more. Um, you know, uh, genre elements and things like that, we might be able to go through it. But mm. I, I, I just am shocked now at the idea that I'm going to try and catch you in a paragraph and he completely has his hooks mm. in you. Like this movie does. Yeah. Like he completely has yeah. his hooks in you. And, and if, if, if all accounts people have told me about Roger are accurate, he probably wrote that in like 10 minutes. <laughs> I mean, he was a very fast. How cruel is that? How, how cruel um, is, how cruel is you, the, the universe's application of talent know. sometimes and insight because yeah, man, 10 minutes for that. Like, I'm sure I, he, you know, he, he did, he, people forget this, but and we didn't get to this too much on the podcast, but he did a lot of sports reporting when he was a teenager 
and early in his career. And like, sometimes his reviews have this kind of like a play by play, like he's filing it like right as the ninth inning pitch is going out, you know, like he's, he moves very fast and gets a lot of things at the top, kind of like you're reading a sport, a, a great, you know, these are not recaps by any means in the way we think of them, but almost like a sports recap in terms of what he's just telling you exactly what he saw, which is what like all great Roger reviews um, you're with him from the very first sentence. Like you're literally with him through his eyes. Yeah. I, I think that that's the, that's what, why I continue to go back to his, his pieces is because you feel um, you're able to empathize not only with his, with, with his impression, but his experience of his impression. Mm-hmm. There's, mm-hmm. They're, they're, yeah. they're not the same thing. They're not mutually exclusive things. And I, you know, my very favorite writers are do both those things. They, they kind of like mm-hmm. contextualize themselves and their experience yeah. in, interweave with their impressions. You know, the, some of the great writers that um, I've been lucky enough to talk to that I just kind of do this all the time, you know, you know, in the ringer family, there's like Adam Naiman, who's such a brilliant mm-hmm. writer and, and Walter Chaw and Angelica mm-hmm. Jade Bastian and Matt Zolazites, you know, speaking of yeah. Roger Acolytes, like I feel like those there's, there's and 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 now one of my friends who's emerging, who I just completely adore Roxana Haddadi is kind of that same way too. Mm. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. It, like there's just this way that some people can like infuse their perspective um, exactly who they are in what they're writing every time. And yeah, when, when he wrote, um, I think Guillermo del Toro talked about like, uh, we should really like praise the works of art that mean things to us. Like that was his big thing about what film criticism actually is. It's like when a movie works resoundingly and it's meaningful on both a technical and a, like a spiritual and emotional level, they're the movies that you should shout about. And he's like, when things don't mm. work, they're less important because they kind of are, that you know, it speaks for itself because it doesn't work. Um, but, but yeah. you know, I, I love that kind of like, it's, it's not just sort of gushing, forgive me. And I don't want to get you in any trouble with, uh, with this, but like the gushing Marvel, this, the next Marvel movie is the best Marvel movie ever discourse that yeah. seems to permeate the internet. It's just like, it's just not true. Can we just stop? Who, who like, oh, I yeah. know, I mean, critics and there's blurbers and the line has never been more blurry but at the same time the line has never been more clear <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah and so so it's i i feel like there's that but and that's why i when i look back at these things and even speaking of those superhero movies like reading roger on like iron man or reading roger on like batman begins and things like that you're just like wow like man he just he could just like turn in masterwork in like 10 minutes and then just like get back out to, you know, get back out to the red carpet of can and like interview Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's a miracle. Yeah. That, I mean, that era of newspaper reporting and Gene had it too. Gene's reviews also have this urgency um, to his written reviews, which I know they're not as easy to find online. And I they're know hard to Roger find Brian. I, I was actually yeah. going to say that till offline. I'm like, please tell me where I can find the mountains of stuff that I'm sure that you've read on Gene, Gene's work. Cause it's, Rogers is all in compendiums. Yeah, you have to have a newspapers.com subscription, basically. And I think his family is is taking some steps to to correcting that. Because I, I I would, I, you know, one of the goals of the show was I weirdly, I almost timed it, but it's 50-50 Gene and Roger. Like, I really want to talk about them both equally. Yes. But I also knew that most people listening, even if they were big fans of the show, knew much more about Roger than they did about Gene. And I I, I, I found Gene immensely entertaining. I, I you know, he's his life story was really interesting to me. I just knew so little about it going in, but I always, I love him. I always loved him as a, as a foil to Roger and as a companion to Roger. Um, but his, his stuff is harder to find, but he also really, 
um, had this kind of, you know, th this economic brisk to the point uh, writing that felt like, you know, you're writing on a deadline, you're getting it out and you're moving on to the next thing, which I, I think is, you know, we, we, we think we have that nowadays with the internet. And I guess that is true that things are filed very quickly, but there was just something about that generation that learned to write on deadline and, and learned to think on deadline that is really, um, without the distractions of the internet slowing down, you know? Yes. Yeah, at least at least the only distraction for these guys a lot of the time is like a newspaper office, you know, just the the white noise of typewriters and and rotary yeah. phones and um and and probably a haze of smoke um as uh, as is so beautifully you know, exhibited yes. in things like all the presidents men and 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 zodiac too. But yeah, no, that that's that was one thing about the show is like I think both of them is um I, I almost think the way that Roger started to bring his work together and 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 make it more available and then create RogerEbert.com was, I mean, I'm not sure if you ever get to it explicitly on the show, but I think it has to be because he looked at the passing of Gene and was like, oh my God, like what, like, you know, one half of my legacy or our legacy is kind of mm. gone, you know, like I, I feel like he's yeah, then gone... Like, like, I, I feel like that would have, whether it was an explicit or an implicit, like motivating factor, I feel like he would have been like, oh, I've got to like make sure that this work lives on because Gene's yeah. gone, you know, like, you know, the, the TV shows are out there and they're in the YouTube form. And, and even like, like I said, the, at the movie show, the Australian version, it's because it went onto multiple channels in this country, like same as Gene and Roger did in the States at different networks. It's like, there's no one spot. And they damn well should be, except for probably YouTube. Mm -hmm. But there's like no one spot that's like a website that you can go to and type in, you know, chronologically, like literally watch every single one of their reviews in a row. Like there's just, it doesn't mm -hmm. exist because no one's doing that. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I feel like with Roger, like the fact that they did that on his side and they kept going with it is just like, um, it's part of that thing, that legacy um, out there. And, and Gene's yeah. legacy is so strong in, in a because you have to have a great foil. You have to have a great mm -hmm. foil to one another. And you, and I, yeah, you especially and I, like so, when they disagree. And I think also, I think there is something funny about the perception of Gene and Roger is this perception that Roger was maybe the real true movie nerd or historian, which to a degree is true. I mean, he was much, much he wrote more about film history and was, uh, you know, kind of consumed by it more than Gene. But Gene really did, and Gene did have lots of other interests. So did Roger. Uh, but I, I do think that, there is um, not having enough, much of Gene's written work preserved online um, is something that I hope does get corrected. Because I do think there is a little bit of an imbalance about how, in terms of Gene and Roger, whereas, you know, Roger is this, you know, had a document, this great Steve James documentary, this great memoir. So um, I would like for people to know Gene. And I do, I do think through his writing, which was very personal, he wrote, he wrote columns too. Um, I would love if more of that was available. Uh, but also, like, you just want to read his old reviews. <laughs> you just want to, you know, any of these guys, you want to be like, what did they think of Clute? You know, what did they think of, uh, you know, Tootsie, you know, in, in when they had to knock out these newspaper reviews of him at the time. And and just the stones of Gene. We just talked about the economy of a, of a paragraph. This is his opening paragraph to his original Apocalypse Now review. Let's start with a premise. It's no great that's that it's no great achievement to make an emotionally powerful film about the Vietnam War. <laughs> Even the worst current Vietnam War films can develop a lump in your throat. I'm like I'm going to read the rest of this. I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah. I am reading the rest of this. Like it's just um 
it's yeah, he's he 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 was definitely a special like there's no doubt he was a special character himself. And I, I feel yeah. like um sorry to lean more into the Roger stuff, um, but it's, it's Oh no, it's yeah, fine, yeah. It, it, that's the that's the great lost thing. I think we were talking about it in the lead up to the um to chatting together today. It was just like, man, I would have loved to see what Gene had to say about Zodiac. You know, it's funny. I have really tried because people have asked me in interviews, what do you think Gene would have thought of this movie or Roger thought of this movie? And I really try not to play that game because I just, it's not in my, it's not in my spot to predict what they would have felt. All that being said, if you look at all Gene's reviews and the movies he loved in Champion, I do feel like he would have really loved Zodiac. I mean, <laughs> because he really, he, you know, he was turned off by crime movies that had, too much gore and grisliness. I mean, he gave th- he gave seven a thumbs up, but I think he was even that he was like, there's a little bit more than there needs to be, you know. And I think this was a perfect gene movie because it's about intellectuals. It's a it's it has a lot of ideas. It's beautiful. He very gene was very big on craft. It's very well crafted. The fact that it was set in a newspaper probably at around the same time that Gene was starting his newspaper career, I'm sure would have been hit a lot of notes. But I also think that it was, you know, um, it wasn't in, in how it deals with with crime and violence it was a lot more, um, I don't want to say mature than, than Seven, but it certainly feels of a very different, it's a very different animal in terms of how violence is depicted. Uh, and Gene, did, Gene just did not really like what he thought was unnecessary violence. And this movie has zero excess or unnecessary violence, you know? No, and, and I, I think um, this is the answer, you know, and we've come up in the show sort of um, in a roundabout way is Fincher when he made seven was not intending for there to be this kind of strange serial killer renaissance that kind of Mm -hmm. loomed and, you know, and then things like saw came out and saw spawns its own sort of gore porn franchise and all these movies that just took the gore and the blood and the guts and kind of forgot that really seven is about is an aftermath movie. You know, Adam Naiman says that it's Mm -hmm. an aftermath movie, which I think is such a spot online because that's what it is. Like all of the things you're seeing are in the aftermath. They're grotesque. They're disgusting. They're awful and they're impactful, but we're not seeing much of it happen in the moment. And so no, I think that, that was not, yeah. and 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 then the cruelty of some of those those movies that were influenced by Seven but just sort of took it almost just like um it's the thing that happens and I'm not I'm sure if it happens with movies that you love too Brian was that some filmmakers have a tendency to go man you know I just you know I was really influenced by Heat and I'm just like stop please stop talking <laughs> now okay because whatever you're doing, I can almost guarantee you, if you're saying that out loud, that's like saying Candyman, like in a mirror or Beetlejuice. Like you are just <laughs> cursing yourself and your movie to put it against the expectations of heat. But so just stop. Even yeah. even Chris Nolan might've said that he was influenced by the look of heat for the Dark Knight, but won't flat out say to anyone that he actually looked at it structurally, textually, you know, everything. Um, <laughs> as he, he refuses to say that because he doesn't want the bad juju. But I would just say... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I feel like when Seven comes along, uh, that has, you know, unintended consequences for the film industry and what people feel like is going to be those kind of like grimy, disgusting sort of, you know, uh, true crime movies that seem to follow. And Zodiac is the antithesis of those things. Like, again, the first 26 minutes of these horrendous acts that you see happening in like really blistering, you know, almost sickening clarity 
And then you're mm-hmm. forced to dwell in the aftermath for even longer than you are in seven, <laughs> like even mm-hmm. longer. It's like, yeah. no, the, the crime crimes happen fast. They're furious. They're violent. They're frenetic. And then it's over. And then these investigations aren't some magical thing that take like two seconds, like Sherlock Holmes. They take decades. People's lives are ruined. And it feels like it's like it was the capo. It was almost the, mm. if, if seven is the thing that's going to instigate it, we're going to just shut, we're going to close the door on it. Um, and I listened to a hilarious commentary. Finch's commentary is all hilarious, by the way. This is a recommendation for everyone. One of the best. One yeah, of the best. One of the all-time greats. Yeah. Um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, um, he refused to let them say the word serial killer in the movie. He's like, mm. he's like, killer of women you know the, or like a, or, or i think at one point they say like a serial murderer but they refi- he's like mm. i do not want the word serial killer in this movie because i just i'm done with it yeah I don't, I don't blame him yeah and i mean he it's certainly it is weird that he has this rep as uh, as a serial killer guy and it's it's sort of in the same way that people sometimes just associate or blame john carpenter for every slasher movie after halloween yes. i mean he, yes. made, he made the best slasher movie and then there were some good ripoffs and some incredibly crummy ripoffs and then just like the bottom of shelf of the video store <laughs> ripoffs. Um, and I, you know, and look, I don't think, I don't think uh, Fincher would deny that he's made a lot of movies that deal with this world, but it's almost never about the serial killers. I mean, it, in some degree it is, but it is always just about the, the ripple effects that these crimes have on every person who encounters them, who the way these things reverberate and touch other people. And, um, I think that's what people miss a lot when they, when they either slam his stuff for being too heavy on serial killers, or what, or, or or if it's other filmmakers who try to rip off his style. You know, it's it's and you you know you're absolutely right about Seven. I was saying, gosh, Seven, so it's it's all in my head. You know, yes. the stuff that, the stuff that when it, when I was talking about when I was like 20 years old and I saw it and I wanted to throw up, I was just the feeling it leaves you. It's not a particular scene, though. I do think the cockroaches in the in the in the in the slots, <laughs> the gluttony scene. I don't like cockroaches, so that that did actually really gross me out. Um, but oh, it is, so, it is. no, and and you're not alone. That is a dis- it, like that whole sequence <laughs> is so disgusting, and it's so funny yeah. that like he puts that so right up of, of, of at the front of the movie that you're like, oh, I don't know how much more I can deal with this. He then does yeah. temper it back. It then is like it's still violent, it's disgusting, but it's like nothing is as visceral as that. Yeah, no, it's actually it's probably the most explicit, like yuckiest thing in any of his movies. Really. <laughs> I mean, that that scene grosses me out more than like a gore scene would, like, you know, like a saw scene. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, and and I, you know, Fincher's movies are all. I hate this term. I don't know a smarter way to say this, but like his movies always all are always kind of in conversation with one another. Again, I don't like that term, but you know, they do feel like they line up. And they're if you look at a movie going from seven to to Zodiac, like you said, I mean, it does feel like two bookends. Um, they would be the bookends if it wasn't for um, his Netflix series. But it, it does feel like he, it's, you know, it's a guy in his, what, late 20s, early 30s making a movie in, the, in seven and then 12 years later making a very different variation on, on uh, a serial killer movie that feels uh, as mature as some of its characters, you know? I mean, I think he is kind of like, he is kind of like Brad Pitt in seven when he's making seven he is scrappy and young and ambitious and um maybe out of his league a little bit but it's going to prove that he's he's worth being there and i think you know he's he's probably more of the mark ruffalo anthony edwards characters in zodiac uh, when he's making that movie yeah i it's there are some great filmmakers and we've talked about a bunch of them but it's like there's the films that uh, some of these emerging voices who are now like the staples and the sort of canonical 
you know, uh, our, our sort of like MVPs of our franchise of uh, our little slice of movies, right? Uh, from the movie franchises. Mm. Um, there's the first film or like these urgent first films that are so much about like, you know, deliberate craft choices mm. about look at what I know, look at the almost yeah. like, I'm sorry to speak in like a, a very literacy term. It's like, look at the meta language, look at how I understand mm. how film language works. Like, look at this. And, you know, for example, it's come up a lot on our shows with like Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, Hard Eight or Sydney, you know, mm -hmm. for, I guess yeah. for the Sydney heads out there, it's Sydney. I'm sorry, guys, but <laughs> it's Hard Eight everywhere else. Um, and then Boogie Nights and then the difference between that guy and then the guy who makes There Will Be Blood. Like there is yeah. a profound difference. And for example... Yeah, he knows he's going to get another shot. Those first, those first movies, when you talk to filmmakers, this, this could be their only shot. They've watched so many of their friends make one movie. You know, by the time any, especially that 90s generation, they had so many peers and colleagues get plucked and make one movie. I'm sure Fincher had a lot of people from the music video industry he'd seen get their one chance to make a movie mm. and that's it. You know, if it doesn't work, you're done. So it's like your first album. You put everything in that and it's very showy. I mean, none of, the, none of the Gen X beloved directors made unshowy first films, you know? I mean, maybe following by Christopher Nolan is perhaps the unshowiest, but it's also showy in its own way. Oh no, it's absolutely showy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's much more reserved, it's, but it's definitely like, it's definitely like I've seen film noir and I'm going to do some fun things with narrative, you know, uh, but it's, it, it feels different than, you know, it does feel different than something like alien three, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Look, Brian, it's been an absolute treat to talk to you. Um, oh, yeah. and, and this, and this won't be the last time that we chat, um, because, uh, as, as it happens, you're also, um, what I think we can call like lovingly a weirdo. Am I wrong? You're a weirdo. <laughs> I like Peter Weir quite a bit. I am fascinated by him. Uh, and he's, uh, he is such an interesting director of his era and has made, yeah, I know, I don't think there's any director I've been interested more and know less about than Peter Weir. <laughs> well, hopefully um, we can have another chat soon um, yeah. about that. But look, this has been a real treat to talk to you. Thank you so much for being part of the Zodiac Chronicle journey. Again, I'm a huge sure, admirer thank of you. not only your book, but um, your incredible Gene and Roger podcast for The Ringer was just really special. Um, and so, look, thank you so much. This has been a real treat to talk to you. Um, is there something that you want to tell us about anything else coming up? Where can people find you just in case, uh, just so uh, I, I can uh, make sure we point people in your, your direction? Uh, I'm still, you know, I'm still waiting for this, uh, for these, this kids vaccine so I can start doing more work, but I do have a couple of pieces, I think coming out on the ringer.com in the next couple of weeks. And I'm on Twitter. I, I barely tweet, but if I write something, I definitely tweet it out. But, uh, yeah, the show's <laughs> Gene and Roger and it's, it should be, it's on Spotify. It's, uh, I think I'm supposed to say follow along on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast, but honestly, you can just Google it and find it. I don't care. Really <laughs> um, sorry, Spotify, but my check is already cleared, so I'm no longer <laughs> beholden to say that. Um, but yeah, uh, and thank you so much. This is a real, real treat. And it was really, I, I, you know, I, I loved the excuse to rewatch Zodiac this week. And it, it had been quite a few years and it really uh, hit me on quite a few levels. I should tell you real quickly, my wife, who is a remarkable movie fan, uh, just for whatever reason, has just been always kind of nervous about seeing Zodiac. And we worked together and I had to have it on in the middle of the day. So I actually... I didn't want her to walk in uh, during certain scenes because I didn't want the movie to be spoiled, but I also did not want her to walk in during the uh, lake scene. Yes. So I actually, there's a sign, it's actually right near, says, do not walk in watching Zodiac, <laughs> which I think we're going to keep up. We're going to keep that up for a while now until someone, we can have someone in our house again uh, after COVID and they can actually ask what it means. But I, I'm uh, begging are, you, Brian. I know I'm you don't tweet. 
I know you're not a big tweeter, <laughs> but I'm begging you to please, please tweet that and tag me. Please tweet that I so will. I can share it. Can I, so I can share that because I feel like my whole life is please don't enter editing Zodiac Chronicles. So you watching, <laughs> you watching Zodiac is is something really special. Uh, that's 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 so great. I will do that. I'll do that today or tomorrow. But yeah, the, it needs to be uh, documented somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Go and seek out Brian's incredible podcast, Gene and Roger. Go find his book, Best movie year ever and guys thank you so much for listening to another zodiac sessions on the zodiac chronicle podcast for one heat minute productions please rate and review the show wherever you're listening it's a massive help to direct people towards our brand of cinematic deep dives as obsessive as they are we'll catch you on another episode at the end of the week